know, there was a time when at least people had the honesty to refer to evolution as the theory of evolution. Uh, but most of the time these days, it's just asserted very bluntly as the, the fact of evolution. And there's no discussion about it. There's no option. And it is just stated that this is what you must believe. It is settled science. Trust the science and uh, the messages that are being given. But in this message, as we look at this, we're going through Genesis. We've been talking about creation. And we just we can't skirt around this. We can't avoid it because it is such a big deal. In this message, we will see that both Scripture and science both give us many strong reasons uh, to believe that life did not evolve and it did not evolve by chance, but was designed and created and designed and created by God. So in this message, we'll be looking at it in two parts. First, uh, from Scripture, and then we're going to be looking at it in sci- from science as well. If you are taking notes, you look at the outline, there's a lot that's in there because there's a lot of information coming at you. And at some point, you might say, well, it looks like this message might be about uh, two hours long. Uh, don't worry. Well, maybe worry a little bit. Uh, but... <coughs> What I'm planning to do is at some point, I'm just going to cut off the message, okay? And uh, we will pick it back up in uh, the first Sunday of March. We'll have a PM service. So that will be uh, evolution part two, so that we can hit that and go into depth on more things. For those of you that are thinking, yes, but I need to have the blanks filled in, I'll let you know what you have so you can fill in the blanks so you don't have that anxiety for the next few weeks. And at least you have the basic idea of where we're going uh, with this. So, thinking about evolution, I just want to talk a little bit about just what the word evolution means. And evolution at the core, just the word itself, means change over time. And this means that when we talk about evolution, we need to realize that you could be meaning more than one thing when we say evolution. And this is going to be a very important thing. In fact, sometimes uh, you can think about what sometimes people refer to as the, the evolution of the iPhone. I've seen articles like this. And I brought it with me here. This was my first iPhone that I had. Uh, it's been sitting in a, in a drawer for a while. It's an iPhone 4S. Little guy who was faithful. It was, did its job. And the current iPhone I have right now, this is uh, a 14 Pro. So there's some differences here, you know, over the years. And uh, size, function, buttons, buttons disappeared, camera, different things on the back. And you say, well, the evolution of the iPhone, how did it get from this and to this? Well, there was a gradual steps along the way of the different phones that were developed from the original iPhone, the very first iPhone, to what we have today that seems to still be evolving and changing over time. But as we think of this, realize people, again, use words uh, in, in different ways. And if we talked about the evolution of the iPhone, we say, well, how did it, we got from this to this, these gradual steps. Uh, if we took evolution in the way that uh, biological evolution is, we would have to think, okay, there were two iPhone S's that fell in love. <laughs> and then they got married and on their uh, wedding night did what newlywed iPhones do together. And after a while, uh, one of the iPhones started getting a little big, and then there were baby iPhones that were produced. And most of the iPhones were exactly like their parents and came into this world, and that happened for generations. And then one time, there was an iPhone that was born that was a little bit taller. 
and uh, just something you know happened, went different, and this one was taller, and the iPhone 5 was born. And so you developed into that. And then over generations, uh, it got bigger into the iPhone 6, the buttons changed, uh, the, eventually the buttons disappeared, the cameras were bigger and bigger, and that's uh, the evolution of the iPhone. Now we know it didn't happen like that, obviously, uh, but even though we could talk about this being the evolution of the iPhone and different changes, we know that this iPhone had nothing to do with this iPhone. There was no uh, relationship where this one brought this one into existence. Uh, and the reason that there are similarities in these things over time is because there were designers, and the good people at Apple, that designed these and kept changing the modifications of this uh, in different steps, and some of these uh, some bigger steps than others to get to what maybe you have in your pocket uh, today. Now, I bring this up for a few reasons. Again, to say that when we talk about the use of the word evolution, it can be used in a variety of different ways. And just because someone says, well, there's this type of evolution, we can prove this type of evolution, that doesn't mean that every type of evolution has been proven. And to do that would be a logical fallacy where you take one definition and then you smuggle it into something else. I think there's other things as we look at this uh, that hopefully helps us realize too some of the reasons if you just looked at this, you, it might seem like it's you know, evolving in a different way, uh, but maybe you've seen uh, different illustrations like this. I talk about the evolution of man from uh, lower primates through the apes up until what we have now. Now, even if something like this, all of these were accurate representations built on uh, actual, uh, complete, you know, fossils and not just a, a bone here and a, uh, you know, a, a tooth there, uh, even if these were, you know, animals or whatever you have, uh, just because you can line something up and make it seem like it's in order doesn't, still doesn't necessarily mean that one came from the other any more than if you have a bunch of different iPhones. And sometimes they produce different iPhones even at the same time, in the same year. And just because you can line them up doesn't mean that one came from the other. Also, think about this. If you had uh, different iPhones and you were to examine some of the features, you would look at these and you would think, well, there's similarities of features and that must show that one came from the other. But again, that is not how it works. The similarities in the features that you see are not actually evidence of common descent, they're evidence of common design, that they come from the same designer that made these. And I think even if you, uh, you know, opened it up and you, you took a look inside and you examined it, you would see some parts that were the same. If you could look at the, the coding for all of this, and the circuits and the, uh, the software, there would still be similarities to it. And just because there are similarities doesn't necessarily mean that, again, one came from the other, but that it was produced by a common designer. And so just the fact that uh, you have elbows and animals may have elbows uh, doesn't mean really anything that proves that one came from the other. And even as we learn more and more about DNA and uh, the genes that are inside of us and these, these codes that, that make us, realize in the same way that even in these iPhones, 
Uh, a lot of the coding might be the same. It might be carried over from generation of phone to generation of phone, sometimes making change, but some stuff that probably remains the same. It still, it can also be explained by a common designer and not necessarily common descent. In fact, you have some phones that may have some of the features activated and some turned off because that's the way the designer did it and is reusing some of the functions. So we get into this, we're going to think about what is, what is uh, the theory of evolution, and not just uh, in the most surface meaning of change over time, but when we normally talk about evolution, we hear it talked about uh, what is it that's meant by this. And so the first point I want to make as we think about this scripturally is that Darwin's theory of evolution is incompatible with the scriptural account. That the way that uh, Charles Darwin and those that came from it, I'm not going to just keep it just at what Charles Darwin said. I know there's been modifications and they talk about the neo-Darwinian synthesis and different things they've incorporated into this. But basically any of those theories that basically trace back uh, to Charles Darwin uh, that they are not compatible, they're incompatible with what the Bible says, with the scriptural account. So before even getting, taking a look at what the Bible says, let's look at, see what Darwin claimed for this. Charles Darwin, 1809-1882, and he's famous for uh, his trip on the, the Beagle and sailing around, went to the Galapagos Islands, did a lot of observations there and formulated his uh, theories. Uh, he wrote The origins, uh, Origin of the Species, then The Descent of Man, and these were some of the main works that uh, got the uh, theory of evolution going and, and um, popularized. And usually people trace it back to him. There's others, but he's the main figure. So let me give you a few things so we understand here's what we're talking about, and so we can compare this to what we're going to look at and see, when, at least in Genesis 1, what is it saying? So evolution teaches common descent. So not just common, not common design, but common descent. And so this means that all species, all types of life, trace back to some original life form, some uh, common ancestor that we all had. And so it may go back, according to this, to some kind of primate, but then further back, and eventually there's some you know, amoeba or bacteria or something like that that was... Uh, something that the first simple life that, that formed and then everything else traces back to that. Now Charles Darwin in his books, he never actually talked about how the first life actually got there, but he did view that it all traced from this original life. And so he talked about uh, what he said was the tree of life. So we've seen diagrams like this where it starts with the, the lower life forms and it comes up and it branches off into there's different types and uh, different you know, categories of life and all the way up to, to us. And, but it all has the same root, it all starts, and so everything comes from this uh, the original ancestor that we had uh, some long, long time ago and evolved from there. So there's one of the... Uh, common things, according to their way of viewing this, life began on Earth approximately 3.8 billion years ago uh, from some sort of simple organism, and every plant, animal came from that and over time. A second element in their teachings is random variations. Now, there's some of these. We, we agree that there are variations between uh, even animals and, or people in the same species. We don't all look the same. We all have different characteristics, hair color, height, different things. 
Uh, but these type of variations, this is part of his theory, is that uh, there were random variations and that accidental mutations produce new characteristics. Now, actually, Charles Darwin uh, himself, when he did this, he didn't know how the variations came about. This was before they understood genetics, before they understood DNA. But he saw you know, different animals, some have different features. Some have you know, longer necks or smaller necks. Some have bigger beaks or uh, different sized beaks. And said, well, there's different variations. And so uh, this explains how there can be at least um, you know, different possibilities uh, within different animal species. And later on, once they understood things about um, uh, genetics, then they incorporated that into what's the, the, the neo-Darwinian synthesis and explained it that, well, what's happening is that when uh, new life uh, comes into existence, there's a um, <coughs> reproduction that happens, uh, that sometimes there's a, a coding error in the genetics and sometimes there's a mutation. And so they're getting a characteristic that doesn't come from mom or dad, uh, but something got you know, uh, just copied wrong or transcribed wrong, and therefore you have this new characteristic that hasn't been in this species at all and didn't come from mom or dad. And that's how new things can happen uh, within a, a population of a species. Then with that is what is called natural selection. This is also what's called survival of the fittest. And we see there's an aspect where this can be true, um, but he used this in a way to explain why some of these species uh, and some mutations last and, and keep on and why some die off. So survival of the fittest and those that are best adapted to their environment survive to reproduce. So the thought is that in most species, uh, there are more young that are produced than more offspring than can survive to at least reach maturity and for them to reproduce as well. So there's this struggle for existence. And who's going to get the food? Who's going to get what they need to survive? And so the strongest or the best adapted are the ones that they're going to beat out the others. They're going to survive and the others are either, well, they're not going to make it. Maybe they're going to starve to death. Maybe they're going to, they're going to lose the fight against the stronger, better one that has better characteristics. Or you know, if it's an animal, uh, they're you know, faster, stronger, sharper claws. Who knows what it is? And so as these mutations happen and some uh, get new characteristics, um, that uh, those that uh, have better characteristics, they will supplant uh, the older generation that, that didn't have these. I want to say too, when we talk about these mutations, realize that most variations are not mutations. I mean, most variations that we have between each other here are not based on mutations at all. Uh, they're maybe from our genetics, but they're not mutations. They're just differences in people. And one thing we have to realize too is that most mutations are actually not beneficial. You know, if you just say, can I sign up for a mutation? You, you usually don't want that. Because uh, usually mutations lead to death or like, you know, growing an arm out of your forehead or something like that. I don't know if that actually happen, can happen. Maybe it, there's strange things that happen, but it's usually not a good thing. Okay, so don't be thinking X-Men, okay? Uh, most of the mutations, you, know, you don't get, um, you know, the power to teleport or shoot, you know, uh, lasers out of your eyes or things like that. In real life, mutations usually are very, very bad, and oftentimes you die from these. 
and you're not passing it on. But according to Darwin, once in a while, the mutations are beneficial, and you're that a little bit better than the rest of the uh, you know, animals or whoever is in your species, and therefore you have an advantage, and your offspring might live and uh, reproduce and squelch out you know, the other ones that don't have the char those characteristics. And that's how he uses that to explain why you don't have you know, every single um, transition between uh, the different uh, types of animals. Uh, because some, they just, they didn't make it. They died out a long time ago. So we have natural selection. Another important thing is uh, what is called gradualism. And that this theory is based on slow incremental changes that lead to new species. And therefore from new species to, you, know, you have the whole uh, family genus species, different, you know, different kinds, different, you know, uh, you know, orders, and it all starts with really small changes. And of course, this takes a lot of time to do this. And so you need to have uh, just, you know, eons for this to, to happen because changes don't happen very often, uh, mutations, and usually they're not um, good, but in this theory, once in a while they are good and they get passed on, but it takes a long, long time. And you recognize that it was slow mutations that happened. It wasn't going to be like this gigantic thing where uh, uh, you know, one type of animal gives birth to like a whole different type. Uh, that would be small little uh, changes, and this is what Darwin believed. And now we know more from uh, genetics that that's how it would need to be as well, too. That to have these uh, giant changes in the genetic code, that just wouldn't happen. Uh, but So gradualism, one small change at a time. And then finally, the entire process is unguided by any intelligent mind or design. Okay, so not by God, uh, not by any designer at all, that it, it just happens blindly. And sometimes people may talk about like nature having, um, you know, kind of vision or personifying nature or life will find a way, but really it's, it's a blind process. There's no mind behind it. It's just accidents that happen, accidental things, uh, that lead to some making it, others dying out, but it's not directed by anything. It is completely an undirected process that, that just happens. And therefore, this is a way to uh, explain the different species, to explain everything from how humanity got here and leaving God out of the picture of this, not having anything to do with God. And so, of course, you know, many uh, atheists really latched onto this because it was a way that they could explain how we got here uh, without believing that there needed to be a creator or a designer behind it all. So we look at that and then uh, we also see, we want to compare this to what God's word says, to what scripture says. So let's read together. And I know we've been reading Genesis 1 each week and it's good to read scripture. I'm going to read the whole thing. We'll start at verse 11 here. Genesis chapter 1. So you got to think, can, could we read this and make it fit that? I mean, could we kind of, you know, massage the text? Could we kind of, you know, squint a little bit or say, well, maybe, you know, metaphorically it means, or we're going to see that there's something, you just can't make this fit. Okay, starting with verse 11. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which 
is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. Now let's uh, skip to verse uh, 20. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swim according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply in the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. Verse 24. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Notice he keeps saying that. Livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. They said it again. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And finally, just down to verse 31. uh, It says before that, And it was so, and God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So here we have um, the account of creation. Uh, we focus on creation of uh, the, the, the plants, uh, the different types of animals, and finally humanity at the end here. And so we can see, at least in summary, some of the things that God's word is teaching in this. I mean, one, we see direct creation of each kind of plant or animal that it is God uh, directly creating and bringing into existence, not from some lower life form, that he's creating each of these. And also he creates each one individually. You see the individual creation of each uh, kind of plant or animal. And so, whereas Darwinism taught this, this common descent, and taught that it was like this, the tree of life, where it starts from one and it comes up and it branches to the others, uh, and we do see God creating, uh, you know, one day and then other days and in, in phases here. Um, but the creation that he does, he creates each one directly. And instead of like a tree, it's more like a lawn. Okay, it's more like grass. And so you have each kind that is created uh, directly by God and created individually. And I think we kept seeing that, talking about it creating according to their kind, according to their kind. Uh, so he didn't just create one and let it you know, evolve and change into the others. I think we, we don't see that in, the, in the, the passage. What we do see is reproduction, each according to its kind. 
I want to say here too, the word that it's used in scripture that we translate as kind, uh, you know, this isn't, it, it, you can't map this exactly on what we refer to as uh, species or uh, family. We have the different characteristics that uh, biologists use today. Um, it at least means species. There's some that say, well, it might be more uh, towards the level of, of family, and there might be some adaptation within the family uh, level. Uh, but uh, it does say there's this, these basic kinds of creatures, and God created each of them. Now, again, that doesn't mean they created each breed of dogs. It could just be a regular dog, and we know actually there is kind of just a basic dog, and you can breed them into the different breeds. Uh, but um, they're each, whatever God defines as the kind, uh, that's what he created, and they reproduce according to their kind. We see in the passage he also, uh, it is revealed to, to Moses, and we have to believe this is from God because, uh, well, until Adam was there, there was no one around to observe this or see what happened, but um, <clears throat> although Adam was probably told and there's things that were passed on and then Moses wrote it down, but we see the direct creation of Adam, the first man, not from pre-existing lower life. Well, let's uh, go ahead to chapter 2 in uh, Genesis. And this is kind of, it kind of uh, rewinds a little bit. It's not a completely separate creation account, but I think it's kind of a rewind. Let's zoom in more on the specifics of how this happened. But when we read this, it says, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living creature. Says so Genesis 2, 7. So when we read that and we put that together, what we've seen, it's hard to read that and say that uh, God created lower life forms and over a long period of time they became man. It's viewing this as God doing this directly. He used the materials of the earth and uh, different uh, substances they created, but he is the one that put him together. Now, he, we're going to see later, and we'll talk about Adam and Eve, but then Eve is created from Adam, so they're not two separate creations. Uh, there's, they, they connect to each other, and that's really important, we're going to see. But as far as humanity, uh, we all trace back to Adam, and we were created uh, directly by God and not from, from, some, from some pre-existing lower life. I think another thing that is a difference in Scripture to the other account is, you know, gradualism takes a long, long time to do this, whereas Scripture is teaching a relatively recent creation of life. And next week, we'll talk more about this. We'll talk about the age of the earth. Is it, is it uh, young? Is, is it old? And I think even if you're talking, you know, thousands of years, that's still pretty old to me. Um, if I reach, you know, uh, 6,000 or some years old, I, it's, it's, I think it's an old time. But uh, it's a lot different than the time scale that is uh, required by uh, those that, that believe in evolution. But they need that. They need the long period of time for this to happen. And in fact, there was a time where they thought that um, scientists loved the idea that the earth has just always been here that there really was no beginning, because that gave them unlimited time for this to happen. So actually, when their theories changed with the Big Bang and you know, now only you know, 13 point something you know, billion years, they're like, oh, it's kind of cutting it close there. Um, but here's the thing, and I said, like, we'll talk about this again next week, and I, I know that there are Christians that disagree about the age of the earth, and we'll, we'll kind of look at some of these uh, different things, but Obviously, if the earth is not as old as science, say, if we're misinterpreting some of the evidence, 
uh, then evolution is just a no-go to begin with. But even if the Earth was as old as they say, uh, it's, evolution still doesn't work. And even if the world was uh, a trillion billion years old, what we're going to see is evolution still wouldn't have time and it still wouldn't even be possible. I read widely on this and so um, read from young Earth, I read from old Earth and uh, people I disagree with as well too. And one of the things that I realize is that uh, the, a young Earth is not the only thing that is keeping evolution from happening. That, uh, and one thing I you know, somewhat appreciate from some that I have that read that have a different perspective is that even if you allow those longer periods, evolution still, there's so many reasons why it is not going to happen. But it does seem that with a natural reading of the text that there's a relatively recent creation of life and that just doesn't work for evolution. And finally, life is designed with purpose by an incredibly intelligent mind. And we know this is God. That it's designed, it comes from mind, and that makes sense. I mean, we have minds. It makes sense that mind would come from another, a greater mind. That all the intricacies that we see in our life, in our, uh, in our world, in our biology, you know, just even as you look at your hands and your fingers and you're just amazed that how do we even keep ticking this long? That we are put together and created by just an awesome and great designer. Whereas in evolution, it's accidental. There's no designer behind it. And instead of being formed by uh, a, a loving God on purpose, it's a long series of accidents and uh, death and survival and uh, people edging each other out and different animals uh, not making it and just accidental blind forces throughout history. And scripture presents something that is very different. When you look at this, I don't see a way to make these two things compatible. Now, I know that there are uh, people that propose what is called theistic evolution. Theistic means the theos is God. So they say, well, we believe in God and we believe in evolution. And there's different ways that some do that. There's some say, well, it's evolution. It's unlikely God guided the whole process and made it happen. But actually, more often, what they'll say, because they want to have the... Well, for those that want to have the respectability of the other evolutionists, they say, well, God, maybe he's behind everything, but it still happened just by blind forces and uh, just by materialism and naturalism. God maybe set it into motion, but then after that, it just happened by blind forces. One of the major organizations that is a proponent of this is called BioLagos, and it's actually located in Grand Rapids. And their kind of mission is to uh, promote this and to help... Uh, try and get uh, you know, churches and pastors to see that you know, the Bible is compatible with evolution. In fact, my wife, uh, she's downstairs teaching kids blasts right now, but she is a, uh, uh, she's a school teacher. And a few years ago, she was preparing for her classroom. And you know, teachers, they get you know, all into this and they have their supplies and she had different bins and she was labeling all of this. And I think it was a year that she was teaching kindergarten. And so it's like taking over the house and the bedroom with all the supplies and labels. And you know, I read about, in the meantime, I'm, you know, reading theology, I'm reading about, you know, I love reading about creation and evolution and different things. Uh, so I have these things going through my mind. And as I was looking at this, I noticed one of her bins, and I, I glanced at it quickly, and I'm like, Biologos. I'm thinking, what are you doing? And she was making these bins and putting it together. I'm thinking, what, kindergartners? And so I looked at it again, and there it said, in big capital letters, Big Legos. <laughs> oh, okay. 
That makes a lot more sense, okay? <laughs> Hope, what are you doing? <laughs> but I just want to say, uh, you know, theistic evolution, it, I don't see a point for it at all. I would say, I am convinced, even if I wasn't a Christian, okay, even if I didn't believe God's word, actually, from what I've learned about evolution, I still wouldn't believe it. I would say there's so many problems with it that this couldn't happen. The problem is, if you don't believe in God, well, you got to pick something. And if this is the only game in town, and if you're going to get, you know, fired from your, you know, your, your job at the university or whatever, uh, then it's like you're going to go along with what's the only game in town. Um, but for theistic evolution, kind of put these things together, there's some problems. Uh, I think you can't fit this with, with a natural reading of, of Genesis and, and the Bible. I just think you can't. Uh, anything close to a literal reading of it. And when I say literal, I don't mean a wooden reading of it, but where the words are communicating something. I think you have real problems with that. And a lot of them do, uh, they don't claim to believe in inerrancy at all anyways. So they're okay having a looser interpretation of this. And also, um, secular evolutionists, they're still, they still reject any idea of divine guidance in evolution. So if you're trying to just uh, win the favor of those around you, they're not going to look at you more favorably by saying, well, evolution, but God guided it the whole way and tweaked the process. Uh, you look at some of the debates and they're very adamant that, no, this is a, is a blind process, that God isn't uh, manipulating everything that goes along. And there's still the scientific problems that we're going to see in a little bit. We're going to look at for the rest of this, uh, our time together, until we run out of time here. So, there's scriptural reasons why I think we shouldn't believe it. But also, the Darwin's theory of evolution has deep scientific problems as well. And so, I think it's good for us to be equipped in this. Uh, of course, I can only go into so much detail here. But there's a lot of good material out there that you can find, that you can look at. And I think it's good to be equipped to understand some of this. I was thinking about this. If evolution was true, if this is how it happened, what would be good evidence that would make us say, well, okay, yeah, this is how it could happen? I mean, one part of, type of evidence could be that you actually see it happen. If you could actually see uh, and observe, and that's how science is supposed to be based on observation, observing one type of uh, species evolve into the next type of species, well, that could let you know it's at least possible. It wouldn't necessarily mean that that's what happened all the way back, but at least you could know this is a possible thing. Now let me ask you, has it actually been observed? Can we observe that now? Go somewhere and say, well, let me, let me see evolution. No, you can't. And say, well, that's because it's a long process. It takes a long time to happen. Well, okay, but let's just realize it's not the type of science where you can observe it happening, that type of observable science. Well, can we look back and say, you know, there's things that we didn't see, but other people saw and they wrote down, and we can look at their testimony. Well, we don't see that either. Okay, so we don't see uh, other people that have reported, well, it happened, you know, uh, 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 a thousand years ago, you know, where this one species turned into something else. We don't have that either. Um, so what else would seem to be good evidence? I, I think we'd expect abundant uh, fossils, that are there that show, you know, just if there was these gradual changes, uh, we would see, you know, just you know, maybe hundreds of transitions between each species. And if they lived and they, you know, are in the rocks there somewhere and being dug up, we would see those. We're going to see we don't see those either. They don't find these transitions. 
I think, too, if they were talking good evidence, there would be also realistic biological pathways for these changes to take place. You know, the more we understand biology, we'll be able to say, oh, we can see how it makes sense that, you know, these changes could, be, could come into existence uh, biologically and then be passed on. And uh, we're going to see we don't see that either. In fact, there are some, um, you know, atheists and agnostic evolutionists and scientists that uh, have been bold enough to critique uh, the deep scientific flaws in evolution. Now, sometimes they substitute other strange theories or don't know where to go with this, but it is interesting to see that even uh, in the scientific community, there are, there are critics of this. Now, usually that, well, usually, that doesn't get presented at school. And that doesn't get presented on the TV specials and most of the media. Those that are in the field know about this, but it's something that's guarded and hidden. And to the public, it's a unified front that, no, we, this is all solid and there's no, no problems. Don't you know, look at the man behind the curtain. So I want to talk about a few things here, a few of these examples. And again, we're not getting you through them all. But one thing that I think is real helpful to realize is, first of all, examples of microevolution do not prove macroevolution. Now, remember when I said that you know, evolution can mean a variety of different things. You know, it could just mean a, a, a change from you know, iPhones, uh, people use it of their, their Pokemon, changing from one type of Pokemon to another. Uh, but it's still that type of Pokemon. But in evolution, there's a distinction between uh, microevolution and macroevolution. And what we'll find is usually when people reference evolution, what they mean is macro, where it's changing from one species or one kind to a whole different kind of, of creature. Uh, whereas microevolution is changes or variations, but it's within the same species, where it still stays whatever species that it is. And what I think we need to realize is just because you can find a example of microevolution doesn't prove that the other type, macroevolution, is the real thing. Do I believe in microevolution? Yeah. Do you, should you? Yeah, I think microevolution can be seen. And it's one of the things that uh, Charles Darwin, when he was at the Galapagos Island, uh, he found there was these different finches. And, you know, these are drawings like this that are going to be in the textbooks. You know, if you go to Wikipedia, you'll find these drawings like on every page that has to do with evolution. And so these are part of these uh, kind of visual representations, these icons of evolution that are given to help us to think, oh, see, look at the changes in uh, these different finches. And what happened is that they measured the beak size on some of these finches, and some of these uh, look quite a bit different. Uh, and these might be exaggerations from the actual data that they had. Uh, but there was a variety of different beak sizes. And uh, th there was a time of drought. And during this time of drought, there was uh, the food sources changed. Okay, so this, this happened. And so uh, as this happened, they noticed that the average beak size of these finches that were being observed changed and were getting larger. And so they speculated, and this makes sense, I think, that what was happening is that because the food supply was changing, uh, that with the drought, only some of the larger and harder to eat uh, seeds were available. And so uh, finches with larger beaks, they did well. They were able to eat 
And some with real small beaks, they just, they weren't able to eat and they starved to death, they didn't make it. And so over time, you had finches that had larger beak sizes. Now part of the story that oftentimes they don't tell you is that when the rains came again and the food supplies changed, then the uh, beak sizes of the finches returned to normal. So in one sense, you do see an adaptation, okay? In one sense, you do see a type of survival of the fittest, but you never see a change from finch to something else. That it still remained finches. This was microevolution. I was thinking about this, I realized how something like this could happen. Let's say we are invaded by dragons, okay? And dragons, they love to eat people, they're going after people, but they don't like to eat redheads, okay? So if you're a redhead, you're safe. They are not going to eat you. So over time, you know, as uh, people without red hair, we're being picked off by the dragons. The people with red hair, they're surviving, okay? And, uh, you know, over time, you know, having other, you know, babies, more are going to have red hair, okay? And so you would have a change in the average population the more people that are redhead. Now, let's say those dragons leave, other types of dragons, you know, the, the dragons go away. Now, unless, you know, all of the other genes for the other color hair have been completely eliminated from population, they're still going to be there. And eventually, you're going to start seeing more people that are blonde or brunette or dirty blondes and all these different types of hair. And so, and then let's say different type of dragons come and these love eating redheads. Now, you know, they're going after the redheads and uh, they're going to be less. Now, in a situation like that, of course, that's made up and hypothetical, but it shows that you still had the same uh, genetic material, you know, that is in the population. It's just some type were doing better for a while, and then other types are going to do better for a while. But there's no actual change uh, from one species to another. And that's what was going on with Darwin's finches. Now, what's kind of shifty about this is they will point to this and say, see, here is proof that evolution happens. Because these, these, uh, there's adaptation in these finches' beaks. But in the population of the finches, there was always the genetic potential for different beak sizes. And just some did better at different times. So to claim this and just call it evolution without distinguishing between the different types of evolution, I think that's dishonest. And it's getting people to believe in that macro type of evolution when you've actually only given an example that is, that is microevolution. Another common illustration that is given is these peppered moths. Uh, that in England there were light moths, uh, light gray and dark gray ones. And then the, the way that it supposes that during the Industrial Revolution there was more soot, and the soot stuck to the, uh, to the trees where they said uh, the moths were, so the birds could see the lighter colored moths really easy and they'd pick those off and eat them. And so over time, there were less light-colored moths, and the darker moths were better camouflaged, and they survived. So again, you see something, it's not a change in one species to another, it's just for a time, some moths doing better than others. And later, when the situations change, things change back. I also read that um, what they actually found, too, is that uh, the theory doesn't quite work, because they found that actually in the wild, uh, these type of moths don't actually perch on the tree trunks, they live further up. And even some of the photos that they used, they found were actually staged because they wanted it to look like this. So they actually had you know, glued moths, you know, dead moths, to the, to the tree trunks to get this. Uh, so sometimes, you know, just what is presented to you is not necessarily the real story. 
So again, another example, you know, breeding dogs. You can change different breeds, but they're still dogs. So I think really important to realize uh, microevolution does not prove macroevolution. Next, the fossil record is not what Darwinism predicted. If evolution were true, the number of transition fossils should be truly enormous. The, the truly enormous, that is not my words, that is the words of Charles Darwin. Let me read to you what he wrote in Origin of the Species. But just in proportion, as this process of extermination is acted on an enormous scale, so must the number of intermediate varieties which have formerly existed on the earth be truly enormous. Why then is not every geological formation and every stratum full of such intermediate links? Geology assuredly does not reveal any such finely graduated organic chain. And this perhaps is the most obvious and gravest objection which can be urged against my theory. The explanation lies, as I believe, in the extreme imperfection of the geological record. So he, according to the theory, realized there's got to be this huge amount of intermediates between one species and the next. And he said, well, these should be found in the fossils when they dig them up. And he said, they're not. But he said, well, the reason for that is we're just getting started, you know, digging up these fossils. Any confidence that once you know, we do more uh, you know, excavations and we get more of these fossils that um, yeah, it would show all these different missing links. It's not just one missing link. There would have to be just, his words, a truly enormous a number of them. However, it's been over 150 years since Darwin first uh, published his theory. The situation is not better. The situation is worse. Uh, Stephen Jay Gould, uh, who is a um, Harvard paleontologist, one of the foremost uh, paleontologists, uh, he stated this, the extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record persists as the trade secret of paleontology. The evolutionary trees that adorn our textbooks have uh, data only at the tips and the nodes of their branches. The rest is inference, however reasonable, not the evidence of fossils. So you can draw anything in a diagram you want, but he said these are not actually supported by the fossil record. In another place, he states that when you look at the fossil record, he says there's two particular features that are inconsistent with this gradualism. One he says is stasis, that most species exhibit no directional change during their tenure on Earth. They appear in the fossil record looking much the same as when they disappear and that morphological change is usually limited and directionless, directionless and sudden appearance. He says, in any local area, a species does not arise gradually by the steady transformation of its ancestors. It appears all at once and fully formed. Now, they interpret it in different ways, and they're looking from a, a perspective that views the Earth being very old, and uh, they refer to what is called the, the Cambrian explosion, which in their interpretation happened five, 538 million years ago. But what's interesting about that is even you know, interpreting in ways that we may or may not agree with, it seems to them that, oh, these uh, animal formations just, uh, not only are they not the links, but they seem to just basically appear kind of all at once, 
like fully formed and ready to go. And again, we would interpret that a little differently scripturally, but we say, yeah, that seems like how it would be, that it would be appearing all at once. And that's what we read. He has a different theory that he has called punctuated equilibrium, where he proposes, well, he's still an evolutionist. The change happens quickly in isolated communities and therefore doesn't leave uh, records. We'll start this one, and this is gonna be the last one we'll kind of be able to hit. Even the most basic biological parts are too complex to arise by unguided evolution. And I think that's true even if, if life had 3.8 billion years to evolve, which is what they uh, speculate. Again, mutations are almost always harmful. We have to recognize that. In fact, last night as I was doing the final copy of my message, uh, I was at the dining room table typing this out and our cat Carbon uh, jumped up on the, the uh, table and walked, and walked over my keyboard. And <clears throat> let me say, when, if I told you that as Carbon walked across uh, my keyboard, you know, I looked at the, uh, what he had typed with his paws and said, this is brilliant. This improves my message. You know, thank you, Carbon, for doing this. I, thank you so much. I think you would not believe me, okay? And even if uh, Carbon the kitty walked across my keyboard uh, you know, every uh, hour, every, every minute of every hour for, for years and years and years, you wouldn't expect there to be anything really useful. Um, in the same way, you know, uh, these genetic mutations, you know, they don't provide useful things. It's just, it's not a mechanism that actually works. It's like, you know, if DNA is like a computer code, you know, if you don't want to copy a computer program and have a, a line of code or a part of code that doesn't copyright, that is probably not gonna say, oh, this is a much better version of my software now. Usually it, it degrades your program, makes it uh, collapse, you know, unless there's ways that it can, you know, find it or get, get rid of it, which actually most of our mutations are just uh, gotten away with, done away with. Cells? are not simple, they are incredibly complex. They used to believe that they were very simple things. In fact, an early Darwinist, Ernest Haeckel, in 1868 wrote these words, because they didn't understand just how complex it was. During these late years, we had become acquainted with monera, that's what they called single-celled organisms. Organisms which are in fact not composed of any organs at all, but consist entirely of sh shapeless, simple, and homogeneous matter basically just simple blobs. The entire body of one of these monera during its life is nothing more than a shapeless, mobile, little lump of mucus or slime, consisting of an albuminous combination of carbon, simpler or more imperfect organisms we cannot possibly conceive. So part of the reason they thought it worked is because they viewed you know, cells as just a little blob of you know, slime, and therefore it was probably easy for it to change. But now that we've understand the complexity, we've been able to, as I said, open uh, what's been called the, the black box and look inside of this, realize that cells are like the most uh, complex structures that are, that are on Earth. Uh, just what is packed inside them and all of their different functions. Uh, one uh, microbiologist, Michael Denton, who's an agnostic, writes, the complexity of the simplest known type of cells, cell is so great that it is impossible to accept that such an object could have been thrown together suddenly by some kind of freakish, vastly improbable event. Such an occurrence 
would be indistinguishable from a miracle. I talk about proteins and how they're formed. If you come back for the, the second part, we'll do that. The next point, if you're filling in your outline, I'll give this to you. Gradual evolution cannot produce anything with the irreducible complexity we see in biology. It's a technical term, we'll explain it. Irreducible complexity. There are some things that are, that are complex. Michael Behe talks about this. He gives the example of a mousetrap that you think a mousetrap couldn't be formed by gradual addition of different parts. You have at least five parts here. You have, uh, you know, you have the spring, you have the hammer, okay? Uh, you have the latch, you have the bar that holds it down, and you have the base. And you can't take away any of these and still have it work. It just isn't going to work at all. And there's so many things we find in life uh, that are the same way where uh, you, you take away any part of it and it isn't going to work. You need the whole thing for this uh, to work together, kind of like this mousetrap. So, well, well. Evolution is unable to account for the origin of the first life, completely unable. Next bullet point, evolution is unable to account for the information in DNA. And then lastly, we'll, we'll end with this. And could you go ahead to slide number 16, please? Evolution, you say, well, why do people even still believe in evolution? I think here's the reason. Evolution is driven by a prior commitment to naturalism or what's known as materialism. That starting with the presupposition that we assume that this world is all that there is and material naturalistic forces, it must explain it. And if you don't believe me, there have been evolutionists that have been very blunt about this. So I'm gonna leave you this quote from Richard Lewontin, who is a uh, evolutionary biologist at Harvard and he wrote this in the New York Review of uh, Books um, in 1997. Our willingness to accept scientific claims that are against common sense is the key to an understanding of the real struggle between science and the supernatural. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories, because we have a prior commitment to materialism. He admits we're committed to materialism, this view, this philosophy, ahead of time, before any of the evidence. He goes on, he says, it is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a materialistic explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations. No matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated, and moreover, moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. This is the view. And I don't know if this is your view, but if it is, 
I would like you to look at what Scripture says, to look at this world, even to, to, to look at what God is telling you inside, and to realize that you are not an accident, that you are intentionally and lovingly made by a creator, that not only loved you enough to bring you into this world with purpose, but brought you in this world for a relationship with him. And in spite of our sin, our rebellion, which we deserve condemnation for, loved you enough to send his son, Jesus Christ in this world, to die on the cross for you so that you can be a new creation in him with your sins taken away from you because of what he did. And I pray and I hope that you will turn to him and you receive Jesus Christ, the Lord, as your Savior and recognize you come from him and you exist for him. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you and we thank you. Thank you for creating us with design, with purpose. And Lord, uh, we thank you for saving us, Lord. Uh, because we look and we see that we are sinners that have fallen apart from you, but you loved us so much. Lord, help us to see your design in everything and to view things um, from what you have revealed to us, Lord God. And Lord, uh, this world, we look at it right, um, does not exclude you, but it points to you, Lord God. So help us to come to you, and we thank you that through Jesus Christ, we are welcomed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.